You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome to this week's episode of Be Humane with your host, Dr. Robin Gansert. Thanks so much for joining us this week for our Valentine's Day episode. And this is truly a love letter to all animals today. It's our Valentine's celebration of animals around the world, all species, all kinds of animals with a very, very special guest. I'm so thrilled today that Jeff Corwin, the Emmy Award-winning biologist, is joining us for a, a conversation about some really serious issues, but also a personal story of how at six years old he was inspired to become a biologist, inspired at eight to become a conservationist. And I tell you, when you hear his story, it's going to inspire us all to ensure that the next generation of animal lovers are indeed prepared to take on the challenges that face us today and help us to help more animals in need. Well, you know Jeff Corwin from his many TV shows on Animal Planet, Discovery Channel, his incredible Emmy Award-winning series, Ocean Mysteries, and he's now the host of the wonderful Ocean Treks show that appears on Saturday mornings. Jeff Corwin was born in Massachusetts. His nickname is Snake Boy, and you'll get to learn why in just a few minutes because it was indeed a garter snake that inspired him at six years old to do this incredible career and that he's devoted to to animals. Jeff has a master's degree in natural resources conservation, two bachelor's degrees in biology and anthropology, and he lives on an island off the coast of Massachusetts where he's able to explore animals right in his own backyard. He's actually been awarded a uh, an honorary PhD tuned from an incredible university for all of his impressive work. And I think what's also really special is in 2002, he was named one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world. And when you hear him speak about his passion for conservation, his passion for animals, his passion for making the world a better place, you'll see why he was provided that most deserving honor. He truly is a beautiful person. And he's also been named one of Entertainment Weekly's top 10 people to watch in television. You know, his father was a retired police officer when he grew up in Norwell, Massachusetts, just 20 minutes outside of Boston. And uh, I think what I love about him, too, is not only has he served our animal communities around the world and served all of us in terms of providing us lessons around conservation and resources, he also served our country. He was an army medic, and uh, he's certainly a, a proud American. You'll hear that from him today. One of my favorite quotes that Jeff has shared is really quite fun, describes his personality. He says, remember, it's not the fall that kills you, it's the landing. And I think when you hear his talk today, our conversation, you'll get a little insight and glimpse into what this means to him. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to our Valentine's Day episode, our love letter to animals around the world uh, with the inspirational Jeff Corn. We'll be right back after this brief message with our conversation with Jeff. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Be Humane with Dr. Robin Gansert. We'll be right back. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. It's 
DesignerPetSweaters.com Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit DesignerPetSweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. DesignerPetSweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to this week's episode of Be Humane with Dr. Robin Gansert. As I shared with you in our opening, we are so proud on Valentine's Day to bring you a love letter to the animals with our good friend and our inspired leader, Jeff Corwin. You know, Jeff, we've all seen you on television for years. We've seen your work. We are so proud and honored to know you. And I'm especially inspired of your commitment to really saving all species. We're thrilled to have you on today's show because we love you and we love what you do for the animals. Thank you. Can you share with us, when did you have this vision that you would be working with the animals? Well, it was interesting. When I was a little kid, we grew up in a, in a very urban environment. My dad was a Boston police officer. We lived in a apartment building, and there wasn't a lot of nature. When it came to wildlife, it was a very austere and kind of bleak place. Right. And we would go visit relatives. And one day, we were at my grandparents' house that lived in a rather rural environment. And in the backyard, I found a snake. And it was the first creature I'd ever seen, really wild creature. And that snake was like a lightning bolt. The light bulb clicked on and, and, and it really inspired my passion for nature. And I remember reaching down to grab that snake. And you that, reached down to grab, the snake? To grab <laughs> the snake? I had no idea. I, you know, the, the innocent selfishness of a child. I thought this was the first time this life form had been discovered it was some sort of scaly legless martian and i grabbed it and it reached back and grabbed onto me and i came running to the house with this garter snake half the length of my body and into the my grandparents mobile home uh-huh. where they lived and my grandmother screamed at me to get rid of it and i said no and she said why not and i said because i love it Aww. and so my dad pried the snake off my arm and we let it go. And if you know anything about snakes, they're the ultimate creature of habit. So for years, I followed the snake and we had sort of a truce. I didn't mess with the snake and it didn't mess with me. And I learned really the fundamental blocks of biology, and natural history and the skill sets of observation. And it was right at the time where you're exercising all those childhood exploratory muscles. So it was when I started learning to read and write and have a journal and take pictures and and learned so much from that snake. So I often think the day I found that snake was the day I became a naturalist. The last day I saw that snake was about eight years old, so two years. I was watching that snake and suddenly it split into two and the front part was angrily biting out at me while the back part was just pathetically coiling about. And my viewpoint opened up to see my grandparents next door neighbor with the spade and he had decapitated oh. that snake. Oh. And that was the day I became a conservationist. And that was the day that I learned that people 
good people make bad decisions when they lack information. And that inspired me to become a naturalist and a conservationist. And that was that moment that put me on my course. At six and eight years yeah. old, yeah. you knew what you were going to do. Yeah. And you were... By the time I was 12 years old, I had my own little natural history museum in the city. I'd charge kids a nickel to come in to look at an old beehive and snakeskins and... Wow. And then the best thing my parents ever did was they moved us to the country and then spent my, my rest of my youth up to the age of 16 in the woods and the swamps and worked at a wildlife rehab center at 13. And then by the time I was 16, I was off in the rainforest of Central America. And that's kind of how my life rebooted towards the direction it is now. Which is stunning. I know that so many of our listeners know you from that incredible television show, Ocean's Mysteries, which aired for years, right? Yeah, it still airs. It still yeah. airs. It's wonderful. Yeah. And it's on, is it Saturday mornings now? It's on ABC, Ocean Mysteries, did for five years. And of course, I had a lot of stuff with Animal Planet, Discovery Channel. And my new series on ABC is Ocean Treks. And basically, it's the same spirit as Ocean Mysteries, but we decided to do it. Ocean Mysteries was the top rated series in its time slot. And, you know, at five years, we really wanted to kind of incorporate the human experience and culture and adventure in addition to nature and wildlife. Right. So uh, with our new sponsor, which is Carnival Cruise Lines, we made an Ocean Treks. And so it's, it rates just as high as Ocean Mysteries does. So the audience has really taken to it. So it still has the nature and wildlife, but we've incorporated more of a sense of journey and culture that's to the fa- adventure. That's fantastic. And you expose your viewers to so much in terms of lessons learned too with conservation. You learned this at such a young age. Your parents and grandparents were so instrumental to your building of this opportunity for your whole life, right? Which is, I think, is Absolutely, great. Yeah. And I think that's a good important message for our listeners, those of you that have children in your homes, look at what you're doing every day to open their minds up. And I think, I believe my children have watched your show and loved it. We've all watched it as a family. So I think that's very important. So I'm hoping that those tuning in today can tune into Ocean Treks as well and follow and open up your children, your grandchildren's minds and hearts, because perhaps they can be the next Jeff Corwin, which I think is so inspiring. That's a love letter to the future generation. Jeff, when I think about your love for conservation, your love for nature, which is so, again, inspirational, can you share with our listeners what worries you the most today about conservation and endangered animals? Oh, a lot worries me today, especially being here in Washington, D.C. There's no protest right now, no. though, I must tell you, on a good day. Yeah, you don't know what you have until you lose it, right? And that's why I think, as you mentioned, the role that parents play is the gateway to connect their family to nature. And I believe nature is how we naturally explore the scientist in all of us, a child with binoculars or a magnifying glass or a fishing rod or a butterfly net begins to explore, unravel mystery, scrapes the knee, unrolls a rock, finds a roly-poly. And these are the roots that germinate us as natural explorers, which cultivates us to become wise consumers, politically responsible, civically, economically accountable. And our nation has a history of making mistakes and learning from mistakes. 
And what I love about our great country is that despite our political ebbs and flows, conservation has always been the tenor for just about every political party. Historically, for example, one could argue that Republicans had a great role in conservation. And historically, one could argue that Democrats have had a great role in conservation. So I want to make sure that that doesn't go away. I think we need to look at folks like Teddy Roosevelt, who created our national park systems. I love Teddy Roosevelt. Even, you know, look at even a polarizing president like Richard Nixon. If we didn't have Richard Nixon, we wouldn't have the Endangered Species Act. If we didn't have Bill Clinton, we wouldn't have wolves roaming Yellowstone. So I think we need to dispatch the political polarization of conservation and realize that jobs and freedom and and the opportunities to grow. But the foundation for us to do that is a healthy environment. I've learned one thing traveling the world. And that is, if you go to a place where human life has the least value, where animal life has the least value, where the, the rights of women civically have the least value, where children are treasured, where you have high mortality rates, children die, you have high uh, fetal mortality rates. If you go to a place like that, no matter where it is around the world, you will find one thing in common, you'll find a broken environment. And if you go to places where life is treasured, where life is celebrated, where humans live to their potential, where where animals are respected, you'll often find an intact and healthy, robust ecosystem. So as we move forward as a nation, we need to remember the key to our success is not only who we are as a people, but it's the nation that sustains us. And the nation that sustains us is the national natural heritage that we depend upon, whether it's to cherish, to aesthetically protect, or to sustainably use. Jeff, you're so eloquent. I think we should have you on Capitol Hill today. (laughs) Truly, we're going to have to invite you to our next congressional briefing. I love your remarks that conservation is is so timely and timeless, and it's regardless, irregardless of a political party designation. Absolutely, It's really boundless in that way. And it's also a great history lesson for us, the way you recount the presidents from Teddy Roosevelt to Richard Nixon to Bill Clinton, how they all had had an impact. And many, many, many many more. Many more on our wonderful natural resource heritage and legacy here in our gorgeous country, which we're so blessed to be an American. Really around the world, the American model of conservation from the founding mothers and fathers like Rachel Carson and Aldo Leopold and John Muir and all these incredible folks, they began in such an incredible, on the frontier of our nation. So our national park system was created. It was at such a a time of exploitation of the West. And it was done with the painting presented towards Congress. Right. And that's how Yellowstone was created. The first original secretaries of the interior were titans of industry. And they would go on basically a drinking binge in the West and, and gamble and say, okay, tell you what, you lost and now you have to buy this acreage and donate it to our national park. I mean, it's amazing that the entrepreneurial spirit unique to America is very much in the root of the genesis of how we protected our nation. And this model we used, which allowed us to restore wolves, grizzly bears, have the California condor flying today, the bald eagle now in every 
state in the union, except for Hawaii, of course. All of these practices under the, the American model of conservation, which is based in science and use and accountability, has right. become the model for the world. There was no such thing as a national park prior to the United States. Mm-hmm. A protected place of nature in Europe belonged to a nobleman. It was right. Versailles. And if you went there and touched that resource, you probably dangled from a hangman's noose. Right. So that belonged to gentry, nobility. We were the ones that said, no, this belongs to all of us. The model of conservation through examples like the national park system was the first place where we had true racial integration. Beautiful. People don't realize that. Yeah, we don't realize that now. But I think today we've just become so in the moment with a 24-hour Once, news cycle. And when and you forget about it and we don't appreciate it, we lose it. Look what's happening in, in many states now. California, many of these incredible state parks, stunning state parks, which were given as gift to the states, are now being shuttered. And they're being shuttered largely because of lack of use. Right. Stunning to me that people aren't utilizing these natural resources. Each of us has about an acre. For every American, there's an acre of protected landscape. In national parks alone, there's over 90 million acres just in national parks. That does include refuges or state parks or BLM. I mean, that's incredible. One of my favorite places is Hanking Rock State Park in North Carolina. And I love just to go see the birds. You're never more, an American is usually never more than 20 miles from a national park or national monument. Isn't that? Which is stunning. It is. It's so important. Well, Jeff, last summer we had you on Capitol Hill with us with over 400 people and many members of Congress and some incredible animal ambassadors. And we launched our Humane Conservation Program. That was all about certifying zoos and aquariums around the world to ensure that animals are really stewarded well. So what do you think about today's zoos and aquariums? Well, it's interesting. It's funny. A lot of people ask me, always ask me, what do you think about zoos? And I think they're expecting me to have a negative response to zoos. And I'll be honest with you. I have worked in zoos around the world. And I've been a part of intervention programs where we've gone into bad zoos and removed animals. And there's nothing more disparaging than a bad zoo, but there's nothing more magical than a great zoo. And I do what I do, not because of, not just because of Gladys, that garter snake I found in my grandparents' backyard. Her name was Gladys. Her name was Gladys. And, you know, she was tragically Marie Antoinette by my grandparents' neighbor. (laughs) But I also do what I do because of zoos, specifically the Franklin Park Zoo in Boston. And my dad was a police officer, as I said, and we lived in a very urban environment and it was not always safe. And my mom was a full time nurse and the zoo was often a place where I'd hang out as a kid. And my dad would actually drop me off at the zoo in Roxbury at Franklin Park and I would go explore that zoo. And I became friends with the director of the zoo, who's this kooky kid that comes every day. And this was a different time. You couldn't do this now with the litigious world. But like they would get an animal that wasn't doing well. I could take that animal home like a snake. Wow. Low rent animals. I would take a giraffe home. (laughs) You wouldn't take a giraffe home. I could take a boa constrictor home. Yeah. And uh, and I loved that zoo. And as an adult, I became a board member of that zoo. And I think zoos are very, very important because especially in the United States, look at our great zoos. Look at the National Zoo. Look at the Bronx Zoo. Look at the San Antonio Zoo. Look at the Philadelphia Zoo, the Cincinnati Zoo. Where are they? They're centered in urban areas, sometimes socially challenged areas and areas where people feel sometimes disenfranchised. 
So for many people that live in an urban environment, including myself when I was a child, a zoo was my connection to the natural world. A zoo can be an inspiration for a child to become a scientist. And going to a zoo and witnessing nature and animals and wildlife is only one level of what a zoo does. Many of the top conservation efforts in the world are driven by zoos. Millions of dollars every year are generated by zoos. There are species today that were extinct in the wild and have been repatriated back to the wild, black-footed ferrets, California condors, many now amphibians that are on the endangered species list, are recovering because of zoos. If you're a panda biologist and if you don't live in China, where are you going to work? Probably at a zoo. That's exactly right. And you're going to wait for your sabbatical (laughs) to go work in China with pandas. That's right. Zoos are on the front lines of conservation, and they are the tool that we use to inspire people to connect with nature. Zoos are not perfect. No place is perfect. Right. We make mistakes. We learn from those mistakes. Right. But to baby bathwater a zoo would be a terrible mistake because these are institutions that are a resource for families. Not everyone is going to be able to go to the jungles of Central America. Right. But maybe their journey towards some sort of natural history moment or experience in their lives as a career, maybe that begins in that that incredible first encounter at a zoo. So zoos and aquariums are incredibly important. They're a, a, a marvelous resource in our country. They're part of our history. The zoo, uh, you know, it's like, and people often think, of, reflect on zoos historically. If I was going to have um, appendectomy, I would rather have an appendectomy in the 21st century than in the 19th century. Yes, <laughs> very true. And if Same thing with birthing babies. Birthing babies, <laughs> I would like, you know, if I was a woman, I was going to have a baby. I would like to do it in the 21st century yeah, versus 17th century and have a... 99.9% chance of survival versus a 30 or 40% Absolutely. chance. Life has changed for us. Life has changed in zoos. The zoo of the 21st century incorporates incredible technology and skill sets and expertise and environmental simulation and stuff that provide an environment for the animals that live there that's very different than that experience would have been even Five decades ago, zoos have evolved just like medicine has evolved and technology has evolved. So has zoos to meet the needs and their missions have evolved as well. You know, you speak so eloquently about zoos and their place today and how they've evolved. It's so important. I also know a fact that to me, I found this summer was stunning. More people attend zoos in this country than all professional sports combined. Absolutely. So I forget what the statistic is, but it's, is it 50 million people? Something like 50, 50 million. million people visit a zoo every year and zoos provide educational materials for over 12 million students. I could be off, but it's yeah. something like that. It's, yeah. it's, it's remarkable. And one of the new initiatives that we're getting ready to launch here at American Humane that I'm thrilled to provide a little insight in for you today and our listeners is that American Humane has partnered with Chicken Soup for the Soul to produce a new book series called Humane Heroes. It features animals and zoos and aquariums around the world. And as part of a wonderful grant through a wonderful, generous partner, we'll be able to deliver a copy to every single K-12 through public school in our country over the next three years. Oh, Cool. Isn't that wonderful? That's great. Yeah. All about rescue, rehab, and the important work that the good zoos and aquariums around the world are doing. So we're really excited about that. And, so and it's tuned. also, you know, to qualify, just to make sure it's very clear, zoos in the United States and throughout much of Europe are 
exquisitely managed. Absolutely. Zoos, certified official zoos in the United States to meet the qualifications of their NGO status. And many have to go through such an incredible challenging it's like i always management process and certification right. process right that to join the specific organizations that zoos need to the professional organizations it's you know it's like getting into an ivy league school right right absolutely and the talent there too are stunning in terms of the people that are running and working directly with the animals it's it's I think, always inspiring to go to a zoo and meet the people that are there to care for those wonderful creatures. I just want to take you down to what a specific animal. Jeff, with all of your experience around the world, again, stunning experience around the world, seeing endangered species and animals of all kinds in all different environments, natural and, and not so natural. Is there any one animal that really keeps you up at night that you're worried about in terms of survival? Unfortunately, there are many, many species I think about so much, especially with ocean mysteries traveling around the world, working in our planet's oceans. We look at our oceans as this amazing frontier that is robust and resilient. Um, but we don't realize oceans, like many ecosystems in our planet, are incredibly vulnerable and sensitive. And to me, it's always disheartening when I am in the middle of nowhere and I find a piece of human ignorance when I find a piece of human negligence, for example, marine debris. I remember being on an archipelago and off of Hawaii that took forever to get to, where I knew I was one of very few people to go, and I got to go with the scientists to help weigh baby albatross. And these were Waverly albatross. These albatross live in such a remote world that they have no natural fear of a human being. So when you approach them, they just kind of look at you oddly, and they're not hardwired to react as if you're a predator. Right. So they just watch you pick up their baby and weigh their baby and put it back. And it was this moment where I'm like, man, there's still places like this, until I looked at her nest, and it was constructed of plastic pull tabs and little bits of flip-flops. Oh and then they have to palpitate all the babies to make them regurgitate all the plastic. And I think about this creature that has the ability to take flight for weeks at a time. It'll actually, when that baby fledges from its parents' protection, it will be on the wing for five years before it ever comes to land. So this is a, the parents will go to the Sea of Japan in a two-week journey to catch food for their babies. And so this resilient creature, but yet so vulnerable to our negligence, I think of that albatross. I did, actually did my graduate work on bats. I think of bats. If anyone is looking for the canary in the coal mine of where we are on our planet, look at the little brown bat. This, just five years ago, was the most abundant mammal species in North America. And the little brown bat, because of white-nose syndrome, will likely be extinct in the wild within 10 years. And I remember doing a story for Nightly News, went into a cave in Battenkill, Vermont. And in this cave, the year before, there were 250,000 little brown bats, and we found 12. And it was so strange, 12 shaking, shivering little bats. And on the ground, it was filled with two inches of pine needles. And I was like, how did the pine needles get in? And I looked down, and they weren't pine needles. They were the finger bones of all the bats that had died. So what does that mean? Well, you can say, oh, that's sad, Luna, the bat is gone. Well, one bat in an evening eats 1,400 mosquitoes. Wow. Mosquitoes that carry triple E, malaria, all Zika. sorts of Zika. One bat 
eats for in an evening eats 1400 insects that infect agriculture one cave like that in a year worth of bats consumes 40 dump trucks worth of pest insects 50 percent of all the plants in the sonoran desert in the tropical rainforest of the new world have their flowers pollinated or their seeds dispersed from nectivorous and fruit-eating bats so bats are a keystone species which we're about to lose because of the disease that is largely our responsibility so i think of bats and i think of the you know it's i can't pick just one wow I don't think any of our listeners, or I know I didn't know about the situation with the bat and certainly with the albatross. And now white-nose syndrome has spread to other species of bats. And it's challenging. Mm-hmm. It's a great example of the challenge. And I've worked with the heroes of like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on the front lines trying to save these bats. It's a fungus called white-nose syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's actually very similar to like athlete's foot. If you've ever had athlete's foot or something like that, you know it's itchy and it, right. it's irritating. It's actually easy to manage in a controlled environment. But with these bats, a little brown bat has to hibernate. So it gets itchy and it wakes up and it starts flying around and boom, the the sand of the hourglass of energy begins to fall and that's what kills the bat. And then they all wake each other up and something silly as athlete's foot is what kills these bats. But we just, how do you manage that on the big level? So we see that with bats. So here's a keystone species and it's also a uh, indicator species, right? Because of their their keystone, because they are integrated and connected to so much in life, pollination, prey species, that ecosystem is in balance because of them. Another keystone species, look at amphibians. Right. Amphibians have been on the planet. They're one of the oldest group of vertebrates on the planet. They have been on our planet for 350 million years. They've survived all the major extinctions. Right. We are on course to lose half of our amphibian species within three, actually probably within a decade and a half from now. We've already lost hundreds of them and we're losing them because of a deadly fungus called chytrid fungus, which is spreading throughout the world. I've actually witnessed this fungus firsthand. I found the last with another scientist in Panama for a documentary I did for Animal Planet. We found the last living adult of the Harlequin frog which was the national symbol of Panama. And then it became extinct in the wild. And they were so embarrassed, it no longer could be their national symbol. So they switched to the harpy eagle. So can you imagine if we lost the bald eagle and we had to take it off our flag? So, So what does that mean? Well, amphibians are keystone species. They're indicator species. They tell us their tight connection to water and air and temperature tell us that they are the indicator of the state of our planet. Their role in ecology, the tadpoles as protein for other animals. Right. The Many of the medicines we use begins as a, a chemical in an amphibian skin like poison dart frogs. Right. So what does it say when we take a species that's been on our planet for millions, for a quarter of a billion years, and that species disappears like this? What does that tell us? What does that tell us we're doing to our planet? Bees, bats, and the amphibians and you know bees look at bees yeah I know. colony collapse syndrome so what's next who's next so you asked such great questions what's next who's next our listeners after hearing from you today jeff are going to be inspired to act what would you suggest our listeners do there's seven million listeners to this radio show every week what would you tell them to do that's an army well that's i army. would inspire i think now is a great time 
to remind no matter who you are, independent, Tea Party, Republican, Democrat, you need to connect with your your representatives and tell them how important the environment is to you. These resources are to you. If you are a parent with children, and I'm a dad with children, you know, I became a conservationist because I love animals and I love nature and I love to connect with animals in many ways. I like to fish, I recreate, I love to explore, I love to be part of conservation. And my passion for conservation begin with the passion for animals. And when I was there to see the eclipse of a species a few times, to see species become extinct, my interest in conservation changed. And that was when I became a parent. And I realized that my children would inherit a world without these resources. And I felt that was a terrible punishment for them. And I realized that, you know, I'm not the only one who's ever said this, but that You know, the world we have today that we exploit and use and cherish and recreate in, the nature of our planet, we don't inherit from our ancestors. We borrow from our children. And that's why it's like this whole idea of where we are, where we want to be as a nation. The key to our success is our natural legacy and landscape and species and in habitat and resources. So I would inspire and encourage you to reconnect with your politicians and let them know that this is as important as everything else. Because without a robust, healthy America, how American are we, right? And I would the other thing I would encourage you to do is to look in your community and, and it's easy to look across the oceans and say, and worry about someone else's backyard, which is important, like right. tigers and, and pandas. We should worry about them. But what about the tiger beetle where you live, right. which is critically endangered? And the, what about the short grass prairie? Right. You know, what about prairie dogs and, and right. black-footed ferrets? What's happening in your backyard? What river needs to be reclamated? What wetlands need to be protected? What organization is doing that? Let that be the stepping stone to the big world in your own backyard because that's your community and that's where your efforts will resonate the most and then that'll have a ripple effect beyond that. What an exciting conversation this has been with Jeff Corrin, who I just have so much admiration for. Jeff, thank you for an incredible opportunity to share your wisdom with our listeners. Uh, This is a a love letter to our children, our grandchildren, a love letter to our communities if we get involved. And as you say, take care of the animals, the creatures, the nature in our own backyard. It's so important and it's so critical and now's the time to act. 100%. Thank you so very much. Well, listeners, we'll be right back after this brief message. You've been listening to Be Humane with Dr. Robin Gansert. Special thanks again to our guest today, Jeff Corn. We'll be right back. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. The young lady from the rescue delivered happy, and I panicked. She was missing hair, stinky, scabby, and I thought, what did I get us into? The cause of his issue was poor nutrition. It was neglect. The other owners didn't care enough about him to give him the nutrition he needed. But I have a vet that I trust, and she recommended Dinovite. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I ordered the first 90-day supply, and within a couple weeks, His skin started clearing up. He didn't smell. He had more energy. He just had a glow and a bounce about him. We've been using DinoBite for the last year, and Happy the Rescue Dog is Happy the Healthy Dog. 
I tell all my friends who have rescues to give their dog the chance at a new start with DinoBite is going to pay off for you and your dog for years to come. 859 428 1000. 859 428 1000. D I N O V I T E.com. Begging to hear more of your favorite show? Full episodes of all our shows are available. On demand, go to PetLifeRadio.com to fetch our entire lineup of possum pet podcasts. Also, dig us up in iHeartRadio and iTunes. Let's talk pets. Live and on demand, only from PetLifeRadio. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On PetLifeRadio. PetLifeRadio. PetLifeRadio.com. Wow, what an episode. Jeff Corwin is indeed so inspiring to listen to, inspiring to have in our presence here at American Maine's headquarters in Washington, D.C. today. He reminds us that conservation is not a partisan issue. It's actually an American issue because we've set the world model for uh, conservation and resource management. It is something we can all be so proud of today. And we should also be so inspired to do so much more. He shared with us what we need to do to act in our local communities, to take ownership and take pride in the resource management and conservation efforts happening in our own backyard, whether it's reclaiming a river or working on the local animal that needs help, that needs saving. Uh, That's what we can all do to make our communities, our country, and our world a better place. You know, Jeff talked a little bit about zoos and aquariums today, and American Humane was so proud to have him join us on Capitol Hill in July of last year as we launched our new effort, Humane Conservation. Humane Conservation is a certification program of American Humane where we go into zoos and aquariums around the world and we evaluate independently how they care for their animals. Are their animals humanely treated? Are their animals cared for well with love and compassion? And does that facility meet our highest standard of animal care? Well, if they do, friends, they're awarded the Humane Conservation Seal. It's our new seal to assure visitors and consumers and the general public that that zoo and aquarium does meet the highest standard for the humane treatment of animals. And that is so critical, as Jeff described today, because zoos do so much work in terms of rehab, rescue, and indeed in the conservation of endangered and threatened species. You know, if you want to learn more about our Humane Conservation Seal, indeed this third-party independent scientists from around the world who came together to build this program with American Humane, please visit our website, humaneconservation.org. I also have my white paper on the site. Yes, I presented a white paper on Capitol Hill last summer. It is indeed the moral case for zoos and aquariums, for the moral case to care for these animals to help us save species. You know, we talked a little bit today about the sixth mass extinction. Our world is in a crisis. It's in the middle of what experts believe is the sixth mass extinction with a rate 8 to 10 to 100 times higher than expected since 1900. Jeff talked about the bat. He talked about the albatross. You know, we all know about the stories of the vaquita. While the previous five mass extinctions were driven by natural events like the end of the dinosaurs, this current mass extinction is caused by us as humans. As an ever-expanding human population continues to grow, there are fewer and fewer true, true wild spaces left. 
And indeed, in some of those wild places, poaching and human efforts have caused even greater decline in wildlife. There's pressure on habitats and conservation efforts. Animals enrich our planet. Animals make us humans better. And we have a moral obligation, friends, this Valentine's Day and every day, to preserve wild and endangered animals. In response to these challenges and duties, zoos and aquariums have become modern-day arcs of hope for so many species. Zoos and aquariums not only fund thousands of conservation projects around the world, they are also vessels with top scientists to safely house and help sustain populations of critically endangered animals. Friends, people won't protect what they don't love, and they can't love what they don't know. Zoos and aquariums are indeed modern-day arcs of hope for these critically endangered species. And our challenge is to zoos and aquariums around the world is to step up and allow American Humane to certify that their practices for the care of their animals are indeed humane and seek our humane conservation seal of approval so that we can all feel comfortable once we see that seal going into that facility. World-class facilities such as the Georgia Aquarium, the Vancouver Aquarium, Dolphin Quest, Brookfield Zoo, Shed Aquarium have all become American Humane Certified in Humane Conservation with many more lined up today to be certified by our independent auditors assuring that us moms and dads, us grandparents can go into those facilities knowing that those animals receive presidential care which they so deserve because again, those animals are arcs of hope for our next generation inspiring them to be the next Jeff Corrin for conservation and certainly for saving species. Thanks so much for tuning in to our love letter, our Valentine's Day for the animals. Thanks so much for learning more at humaneconservation.org. And be sure to tune in to next week's episode of Be Humane with Dr. Robin Ganser right here on Pet Life Radio for another exciting episode about what it is to be humane. Remember this week and every week to be humane. Talk to you soon. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.